Well, good morning, church family. If you have your copy of God's Word, would you continue to worship with me and find the 15th chapter of the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 15. It warms my heart to listen to you sing and to worship the Lord. In fact, today I have a unique opportunity and a privilege before me. Often our minds are trained to know what to expect, and you knew when you came in this morning or you tuned in online that we would begin with some announcements, perhaps a welcome. We enjoyed believers' baptism, and then we sang together. And just a few seconds ago, as Candace so beautifully led the worship team behind me and before you on the stage and you in worship, we sang the words, Holy Forever. We sang words like, What He's Done, and we celebrated the finished work of Christ and how that makes our hearts in unison be reminded of the good news of the gospel. And then I have the opportunity to walk out, and I can't sing a lick. I have no musical ability. And so your mind switches from music and song to the teaching and the preaching of the Word. You assume a posture not of proclaiming with your own words, but of listening with your ears and your heart, your eyes are engaged in the text. You've pulled out your copy of God's Word that I hope and pray you'll bring with you every Sunday, whether you have a printed copy, as I strongly recommend, or an app on your device. And, and so we've switched gears, but not so fast. For today, I'm going to preach about singing. So I've written a song. <clears throat> Are you ready? I hope not. <laughs> Actually, I'm just going to preach, but I'm going to preach about singing. Reactions are a part of life, and they matter. Ladies, would you help me for just a moment? When someone presents before you a friend, a loved one, perhaps a sister, a niece, comes to you and presents to you a newborn baby in unison, what do you say? There, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that awesome? <laughs> Guys, they never say that when they see us coming. They, they never say that at the beginning of the service because I did not have the welcome or the baptisms today. I was down the hallway there in the preschool speaking to some of the teachers and the parents, and I, I have a favorite classroom back there. It's one my Valentine works in. And so I stuck my head in the door and I said, hello. And she rolled her eyes at me. <laughs> Someone behind me said, can you ask Laurel to come here? I said, sweetheart, can you come here? She rolled them twice. I said, it's not for me, it's for him. Countenance change. Oh, what do you need? I said, sweetheart, where's that face? I need that face. She said, go back to work. I don't need to talk to you right now. We all have those reactions. If you've ever seen anything that's horrible, you typically go, oh, it takes your breath away. At times, someone says something so hilarious, you are overwhelmed with laughter, and you laugh so much it hurts. In fact, you will even text your friends about it the next day. You'll say things like, man, last night was so good after dinner, we just pushed back and we laughed, and I needed that. There is therapy in 
laughter. Other times someone tells you something that's so deep and so hard to contemplate, you would literally say, I don't know how to react. And you sitting there with the person and just being with them during a difficult time is really ministering to them. It is the ministry of presence. Tonight, you will react in different ways. Some of you will only watch for the advertisements. Others of you will cheer on God's team, the San Francisco 49ers, <laughs> as they try to take down the Swifties. <laughs> she has no place in my football. <laughs> Every Taylor Swift fan just Googled a new church. Where, where am I going to go next week? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go, right? But we have all kinds of reactions. And one of the things that makes us human is that we sing. That's one of the reactions of being human. To be human is to sing. Now, we understand that like in any human endeavor, there are some of us who are more talented than others. As I mentioned tonight, we will watch incredibly strong, fast, athletic men play a difficult and violent sport. And there's no one in this room that has the ability to do what those men are going to do. Maybe some of you had it at some point, but it's quickly lost. There will be no 50, 55, 60-year-old players out there on that field. Tom Brady retired. <laughs> and so there are all kinds of things in life that very few people do at a high level, but all of us do them. And singing is one of those. Even if you consider yourself a stoic, even if you consider yourself just a alone by myself, pickup truck, cab, shower singer, you just sing when you're by yourself. Humans sing. And we tend to sing about those things that we're most passionate about. Guys, I, I want to remind you what Wednesday is. It's Valentine's Day. Don't, don't miss that. Here's the pregame warning. I'm letting you know. And we all know that there would be very few secular songs if you took out the subject of love. In fact, many, many, many songs are written to express the emotions we feel when we become infatuated with a person, a person who is the object of our attraction, someone that we feel romantically drawn to. There are love songs in every genre, and there have been love songs in every generation. We sing about love because it is a point of passion for us. It is an important matter. We are not designed to live in isolation. And the first love that we feel, we hope and pray, is the love from our family to us as we grow. But then once we reach maturity, most long for that partnership and a husband and a wife, and that begins with a romantic relationship, and that comes with it, all those feelings of falling in love. And we sing about it. But we don't just sing about love, we sing about all kinds of subjects. And if there is a group of people who ought to be a singing people, it is the people of God. In fact, singing is a part of the creative design. We see this in Scripture from beginning to the end. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he says this to the believers in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly 
teaching and admonishing one another. He's not talking to pastors here. He's talking to the whole church about allowing the Word of God to be a part of your life and speaking that Word into the lives of other people. The pastors and the preachers and the teachers of our church are certainly a gift that God has given us, but they're not the only ones charged to speak wisdom and truth into one another's lives. We need one another. But notice what he says, you know, wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So Paul pictured that part of the Christian life is that in addition to learning the gospel and sharing the gospel and learning a trade and doing a trade and loving one another, we are to be people who express the deepest part of our identity in song. Now, this is one of those wonderful examples where we know Paul is not just waxing eloquently. He practiced this years before when he and Silas were in prison in the book of Acts chapter 16. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. You see, if someone were to walk into this room right in this moment, they would believe that I believe what I'm saying. I'm the one speaking. But the rest of you are respectfully and hopefully intently setting quietly. They have no way of knowing what is in your heart, what is the condition of your spirit, where you are. But a few moments ago, had someone been able to walk in and had we turned the lights up where they could see the expression on your face, they would have known instantly, is this a woman who is singing from a place of belief? Is this a man who means what he sings? And the interesting thing is, you may wonder, what does this have to do, Pastor, with the book of Exodus? If you are a guest of ours, whether you're watching online or here with us live, we're walking through the book of Exodus. We're in our third sermon series, and it's called Get Out. And it's called Get Out because Pharaoh told Moses and the children of Israel, get out, and they leave. And last week, we saw the most famous noted miracle in the book of Exodus, the dividing of the Red Sea where the children of God walked across on dry land miraculously, and then God allowed Egypt's army to pursue up until the point they were trapped. He allowed the wall of sea on the left and the right to flood Pharaoh's army, and not a single Egyptian soldier survived. And here we come today to this group of people who have watched two miracles Miracle number one, where there seemed to be no way, God made a way. Miracle number two, when they seemed to have passed through the sea, and yet their enemy was also taking advantage of miracle number one, God made a second way. He became a man of a way and a man of war. He destroyed their enemy. And we find them singing. In fact, did you know that the book of Exodus has the first recorded him in all of God's Word. The first praise song ever sang is sang the day that Moses and the Hebrews looked and their liberation had been secured and their enemy had been defeated. One of the church fathers that you study, if you study church history, is Augustine. Sometimes people pronounce it Augustine if they grew up where I did, but it's properly pronounced Augustine. Listen to what Augustine says. No 
you what a hymn is. You'll notice the antiquated language. It is a song with praise of God. If you praise God and do not sing, you do not utter a hymn. If you sing and do not praise God, you do not utter a hymn. If you praise anything else which pertains not to the praise of God, although you sing and praise, you utter no hymn. A hymn, then, contains these three things, song and praise and that of God. Praise, then, of God in song is called a hymn. And the first hymn, is in Exodus chapter 15. Take your copy of God's Word and let me show you what I mean. Beginning in verse 1, we see immediately this follows the miracle. In fact, the chapter almost begins mid-sentence. Then, what's the then broken off of? Look at verse 31 of chapter 14. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, look at the first verse, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. Now, in 1997, a channel I certainly don't recommend at this point in my life, MTV, released a documentary called Behind the Music. Ever watched it, Behind the Music? I'm fascinated with people. I like biographies. I'm the kind of person that if I begin watching a movie with my children and I become impressed by an actor or an actress, I look the actor and the actress up and read about their life while the kids watch the movie. I like people. It kind of goes along with what God's called me to do. I enjoy people. Every person has a story. I've yet to meet someone I didn't like. Met some people who weren't likable, but I'll find a way to like you if you'll give me enough time. I like people. And behind the music was fascinating because it took the documentary approach to, we know the songs of the band, we know the content of, the, uh, of their words, but who were these people? And almost all of the behind the music have the same storyline. Have you ever noticed these guys in obscurity or these young ladies in obscurity? And then they write a hit and things get really big and they make a pack. We'll never, ever stop making creative music. And then the pressure of the second album, the sophomore album usually flops. And then the drugs and the alcohol and the partying begin to take them over. And they all end up in rehab. And the last 10 minutes of the behind the music is when they get clean again and they do a reunion tour because they're out of money. This is exactly how all of them, I don't know if you ever noticed that, but that's how they all happen. The behind the music of this chapter is really given in verse 1 when we know the event that took place in the context of it. And then if you have your copy of God's Word, you may need to turn one page. You may scroll down. If you'll look at verse 19 as a summation at the conclusion of the hymn, which we're about to go through. Moses writes, for when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. So it's just a summation. This is why the hymn was written. This is the event. 
And we see Miriam get involved, ladies. Then Miriam, the prophetess and the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. She was Pentecostal, of course. And all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them. And Miriam actually doesn't sing a new song. She teaches the people this song because the song that you read in verse 21 is the first verse of the very first portion of the chapter. A lot of the Psalms and songs of the Old Testament did not have a title, but the Jews would remember them by their first sentence. Often you do this. You go, oh, what's the name of that song? I don't know, but here's how it goes. And then you Google the first lyric and it takes you to the title. Well, that's not anything new, although Google is. That's how the mind works. Many people realize that's why Jesus on the cross suffering was contemplating Psalm 22, the Psalm of the cross, when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the first verse of Psalm 22. And when you read Psalm 22, you see death and despair and sacrifice. And then about halfway through the psalm, the tone turns to resurrection and power. And this is the song that Jesus is contemplating. Remember, Jesus sang the scripture says the evening of his arrest before they went to the Mount of Olives, they sang a hymn together. Paul sang, David sang, Saul sang, Jeremiah, Isaiah sang, Moses sang. So the context is pretty clear. And yet remember what Augustine said. Augustine said that true Christian worship, that hymn of praise has three parts. It is the singing what you do, the praising, the object, and then God, of course, is the subject. So you're singing praise to God. How did these people praise God that day? And my suggestion to you, if you'd like to apply this to your life, is that the very first hymn in the Scripture is a perfect example of the content and the passion our singing should hold as Christians. Look with me in God's Word and let me show you. I believe that first we see they praised him for his identity. The first thing they did when Moses began to lead them in this song, if Moses is the author and Miriam the composer with her tambourine, if you will, is they start with the identity of God. This answers the question who is he or proclaims who he is? Look at verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. A couple of things that remind me quickly of the truths of this text are found in the repetition of the adjectives. Occasionally someone will say, why do we keep singing the lines over and over and over again? Others, others will say, I wish we could just sing the entire time. Thank you. That makes your pastor feel quite wonderful. Now, there are some of you who are like, I don't even need a song, man. If you just start preaching, I'd listen for an hour and a half. That's like four of you, and uh, you and I can do a Bible study at any time. 
One of the things we note about singing is that singing often is different than a novel or an essay. A song actually has very few words. I mean, James Brown made a whole career with like four words and six grunts. In reality, most songs are not wordy. It is not the exhaustive content of the words. It's the poetic meaning and the repetition of the word. And it is from which the perspective of the song comes. I mean, notice first of all that, that every pronoun is personal. There's no we here. He says, the Lord is my strength and my song. Moses, as he pins this song and leads the people of Israel to celebrate it, has become very personal in his understanding of who God is. He's not just a song. He's not just a divine being. He's my strength and my song. People can gather and sing about a God, and they can sing about the God. For we know there is only one God. But friend, your singing does not take on what the Bible says it should until you sing about your God. Once he becomes your God, then regardless of your natural ability, regardless of the idiosyncrasies of your personality or how comfortable or uncomfortable you may feel making a joyful noise, when you have experienced all of who he is, he becomes your God. So when I sing, I do not sing to the God of Church at the Mill, though he is the God of Church at the Mill. I do not sing to the God of Christianity, though certainly we believe that God is the God of Christianity. I do not first and foremost sing to the God of the Bible, though of course I believe that we sing to the God of the Bible. I sing to my God, my strength, and my Redeemer. Notice the repetition of the adjectives. Look at verse 2. He has become my salvation. Now, why could Moses say this with powerful poignance? Because he's standing on the seashore looking at the dead bodies of the Egyptian soldiers who wanted to harm and recapture them float up as he watches an entire slave nation now enjoy its liberty. So Moses is saying in song, I have seen him save me, I'll tell you a great way to let the air out of your worship. Forget about being saved. Get saved and get over it. I don't mean be resaved. That's not biblical. You were born once. You cannot re-enter the womb of your mother. You cannot reverse time. You were only born once. You're only born again once. I'm not talking about resalvation. I'm talking about remembering how he saved you, what he saved you from, and what he saved you to. And all of a sudden, even the most stoic heart should feel a song. Now, notice what happens in verse 3, or rather the second phrase of verse war, verse 2. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is, and this is the first time it's not a personal pronoun, a man of war. The Lord is his name. Does that make you remember the burning bush? Remember Moses had but a few questions, and one of them is, 
if I do this and I go back and I show up as an exile of Egypt, an 80-year-old nomad, a shepherd from nowhere, the land of Midian, and I tell Pharaoh to let the entire nation of the Hebrews go because God wants us to go to the wilderness and worship. And Pharaoh, number one, even gives me a hearing. And number two, even chooses not to execute me, but to consider my request. And he asks me, who has sent you? What God? For Pharaoh knew many gods in his own Egyptian darkness. God, what should I tell them your name is? And of course, we know God answers when he says, I am who I am. And from that point forward, God is referred to as the Lord, Yahweh, the one true living God. Now Moses is not asking, he's singing. Think of the progression. When someone doesn't know the Lord, who is Christ, what can he do for me? What does it mean for me to be saved? What does it look like for me to repent of my sin? What does it feel like to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit? How do I pray? What, what should I do with my life? How do I deal with sin? How do I deal with temptation? How do I deal with broken relationships? These are all questions that young Christians ask or people who've not yet come to faith ask. How can you trust and then an ancient figure who died on a supposed cross and supposedly rose from the dead? You've never seen him. How do you know? And when you have a level of maturity or a years behind your faith, you patiently and lovingly answer those questions with the Word of God, but you're just waiting for the spiritual light to come on, because when it comes on, then it's like, He's my Savior. He died for me. The blood covered my sin. He gives me strength. His Spirit fills me. I have purpose and direction, and even in the deepest, darkest sorrow I may face, all of a sudden I recognize His creative purpose, and when all of that begins to boil over, there are many emotions I can testify, I can pray pray, I can share, I can sit and ponder, but church, family, I ought to sing. I ought to sing for who he is. And then I sing for what he's done. Secondly, they praised him for his activity. So, something happens in the passage around verse 4. In verse 4, they begin to retell the story in song. Now, did you know that a lot of songs are really talk about emotions that are timeless? You know, when a man loves a woman. It's an emotional song about an experience any man who's loved a woman feels. When we experience darkness or struggle or confusion, there are songs asking hard and deep questions that literally any generation can appreciate. This is why it's good to expose yourself to music outside of your own generation. Why, if you like music, you end up liking many kinds of music, and you begin to appreciate its uh, artistic value. But one of the types of songs that you and I know are songs that tell of an event. I remember as a little bitty boy, the old, old, old country western song by Johnny Horton, who actually shared the name of my father, who's Johnny Horton, The Battle of New Orleans. 1814, we took a little trip down the Mississippi, to the Gulf of Mexico, we took along some bacon and we took along some beans. We fought the bloody British, the battle of New Orleans. You remember that song? I don't know if you remember it, but it's actually a song that made the charts about a battle, about a war, the War of 1812. And all the way through, we remember that. 
Some of you may remember the song, The Day the Music Died. Bye-bye, Miss American Pie. Drove my Chevy to the levee, but the levee was dry. Don McLean wrote that song. You know what inspired him to write that song about the changing tide of American society? It was a plane crash in 1959 where three artists lost their lives due to this. And he remembered the day that Richie Valens and the big bopper died, and it seemed like music changed forever, and he wrote this long, long, long song about it. And then all of you remember when Alan Jackson debuted live, a simple song that said, where were you when the world stopped turning on that September day? It's just the country western version of a reflection of a moment that is the historical moment of our generation. Think about that. When I was a little boy, my mother talked about being a little girl when President Kennedy was assassinated. I heard men talk about the struggle of World War II or the Korean conflict or the Vietnam War. For my mother, she remembered that moment. For me, I remember being a second grader when the Challenger exploded in the air as we watched it in our classrooms. And then, of course, we remember these moments. And for all of us who were alive in 2001, we remember that moment, 9-11. And we think about what changed about our lives during this time. Those songs capture an event. Well, this is what they did in verse 4. They begin to tell the story in song. Look what the Bible says, beginning in verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. Verse 5, the floods covered them. They went down to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, verse 6, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters him. And why his right hand? Because a right hand is the hand a warrior held a sword. This is why Jesus rules from the right hand of God, metaphorically. It is the hand of power. It's one of the reasons why men are taught from a young age, you shake a man's hand with your right hand. And the reason is, is that antiquity, I had to put my sword down to shake your hand, which means I come to you in peace. You shake with the right hand. It is the hand of strength and power because most people are right-handed. And the scripture goes on to say in verse 7, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. The flood stood up in a heavy heap. The deep congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, and then they tell the story from the Egyptian perspective, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword and my hand shall destroy them. But look at verse 10. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. If you drop down to verse 12, you stretched out your right hand. There it is again. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. There are two parts to this praise of his activity. The second part is missing in much modern worship. The first part is the idea of the love of God. We see that in verse 13. 
you have led in your steadfast love. It is a good thing to praise God for his love. But the majority of this section praises God for his wrath, for his judgment. Let me tell you how to suck the passion out of your worship. Emasculate your God. Take away the reality that he is a holy warrior who will bring justice. I mean, which fan base sings at the conclusion of a game? Which fan base gathers with the band and sings the fight song? Which fan base marches out of the stadium singing loudly? It's not the one that triumphed. It's the winning team. This is what Israel is saying. We did not fight this battle. We're not more powerful than Egypt. We certainly could not have overcome the mighty chariots of Pharaoh, but our God has brought forth justice. Graciously, they were warned. One plague led to two, led to ten, and finally we were released only to watch Pharaoh's heart be hardened again. And so ultimately, God destroyed the enemies of his people. When we sing as a church, we don't just sing of his love for us. We sing of his rule and his reign over all of eternity. Now, let me drop that into you in your life. Here's a great application. If you're honest, some weeks you come in here, you don't have a song in your heart. It's all you could do to get here. Some of you couldn't even get here. You're at home with a sick child. You're traveling. You're stationed overseas and serving our country. You're taking advantage of the technology that allows you to hear the word. We're thankful for that. We long for you to be back with us, but we're thankful for that. Others of you in this room have no song in you this morning. But a few moments ago, you saw someone to your left singing. You connected with someone on the stage who was singing. And by halfway through the first song, you found yourself moving a little bit found yourself feeling it. I'm not playing on emotions. I'm not talking about manipulation. I'm talking about the power of song in unison when you personally don't have a soul. This is what Paul's talking about when he's saying, sing to one another the goodness of God. One of the most powerful things I often see when a believer buries a spouse is the widow or the widower with tears in their eyes, feet away from a casket, worshiping the Lord because of the hope they have in their loved one being with Jesus. The world knows nothing of this. This makes no sense. But because of our God's great activity, we praise him. Finally, they praised him for his certainty. Something happens in the song. They stop singing about the past. And they began to sing about the present. Look at verse 14 as we close. The people have heard. Which people? The Egyptians are dead. Which people? It's the people across the Red Sea. R remember, the promised land is inhabited. And what we're going to find in the book of Exodus, and if we were to continue in the book of Joshua, <laughs> they're not ready to give it up. I told you a few moments ago, or a few weeks ago rather, that while there is not a geopolitical parallel, it is interesting to me that even as we read Exodus, Israel is still fighting for their right to exist. 
And so what we find here is in verse 14, the people have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Remember, that's where the Philistines were, but they're not alone. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab and all the inhabitants of Canaan. Canaan, of course, is the land that will become and is known as the promised land. If you grew up in churches like mine that sang hymns of the old, we talked about Canaan land is just in sight. This is why it makes sense. It's historically and geographically accurate. And he says in verse 16, Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone to your people, O Lord, pass by. To the people pass by whom you have purchased. There is no entitlement here. They're not singing praise because they're better than the Edomites or the Canaanites or the Philistines. They're the redeemed. God in his sovereignty has chosen them to be his people and he has purchased them. Through the slaying of the lamb, the blood, through the passing of the sea, the blood and the water. Every person that passed through the water this morning has already passed through the blood. See Exodus in the New Testament. And so what happens is, is they begin to sing praise about not only God's identity, this is who he is, and not only God's activity, this is what he's done. They begin to praise God on his certainty. This is what he will do. And that's how the song ends. Look what the Bible says in verse 17. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, the place of the Lord which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever. Remember the illustration I gave just a few moments ago that some of you, if you're serious and honest, and I hope you're both, you're going to come in here some days and you have no song to sing. The progression of a discouraged worshiper is that they become reminded, wait a minute, I got a lot going on and there's some stuff that's filled my heart and I'm dealing with some stuff, but I've been reminded who my God is, his identity. Oh, and then I remember what he's done for me, his activity. And guess what the natural progression, the natural flow of worship is? Once I ground myself in the singing of his identity and I ground myself in the singing of his activity, then I start to remember, wait a minute, my God wins. I will rejoice in his certainty. And then I come full circle. I'm able not to ignore my struggles. I'm not pretending as though my life is easy. But the greatness of my God and the promise of my future creates in me a heart to worship. And the way worship bubbles up most often is I sing to the Lord. Have you ever noticed if you ever want to remember something, you make a little song about it? Some of you still sing the ABCs to yourself. Or that little song about the months, January, February. And I know there's at least a few of God folk in here who when they're asked to find Habakkuk, they start that song, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Why do we teach our children those jingles? Why do we remember lyrics? You don't remember what you had for supper last night, but a song you sang in high school can play and you will hit every word. There is a beautiful power in singing, especially in singing in despair about what we know to be 
true. You've all heard the story of John Newton, the slave trader, who was saved by God's amazing grace. And in the 1770s, he wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace. He could not believe that God would forgive a slave trader. He would go on to become an abolitionist and fight against slavery. Everybody knows the first verse, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But think about the last verses of that great passage. Look at verse 4, verse 5. The Lord has promised good to me, his word my hope secures. He will, notice the present tense, he will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Look at verse 5. Yea, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. And then he rounds the corner in verse 7. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. The sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. Did you know there's a verse 7? When we've been there 10,000 years? Of course you did. Bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. He's singing about the certainty of God. A hundred years later, a businessman from New York named Horatio Spafford famously wrote, It is well with my soul. Now, you've heard the story, but he wrote that on a ship, stopped over the part of the Atlantic Ocean where his four daughters had drowned in a shipwreck the week before. He wrote that song, It Is Well With My Soul. And as he dealt with the anguish of losing his daughters, and Lord, haste the day when the face shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trunk shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. When you see God's salvation, and you sense his strength and his presence, you will sing about it. Church family, I want you to sing. Not because it's the first half hour of the service. Not because it's the warm-up. I want you to sing. But I don't just want you to sing on Sundays. I want you to sing in preparation for another day. I got one more thing to tell you. Moses' song was the first hymn of the Scripture, but it will be sung again. Do you know what Revelation 15 says? Then I saw another sign in heaven, great, amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass. Now listen to this. With the hearts of God in their hands, and they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord. God the Almighty, just and true are your ways, O King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. The first hymn in the Scripture is in front of a sea, a sea that has destroyed the enemy of the people of God. That hymn will show up in the future in front of a sea. A sea that will be destroying the destroyer of the enemy of God. One Bible, one redemptive story, 
one resounding eternal song.